Good morning to everybody here in the auditorium. Good morning to everybody watching and joining us in venue and online and on the TLC app. My name's Renee, one of the pastors here. And I am so excited this morning because we are starting a brand new series we call Meals with Jesus, where we are going through the gospel of Luke and looking at every single meal that is mentioned in this gospel. And why are we doing this? Well, for one reason, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are at a cultural moment right now in America where food is just huge culturally. Watch this. A recent survey says 76% of Americans say they enjoy talking about food and restaurants and sharing their recent discoveries. 53% of Americans say they watch at least one food show on TV every single week. And there's so many. Have you noticed? Shows like Top Chef, No Reservations, Man vs. Food, Hell's Kitchen, Master Chef, Diners, Dives, and Drive-Ins, and many, many more. Somebody said, food is the new fashion. I mean, it's gotten to the point people are even posting more food pictures on social media than pictures of their own children. This is a real thing. And you know what? I think in some ways we're just rediscovering what the ancient world knew, and that's this meals are fun and meals are very meaningful. Meals are where you really get to know one another. Meals are where you start family traditions. In this series, as I said, we're going to look at the meals with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. They are the books where we learn about Jesus. Luke is one of the four Gospels. And 20% of Luke's Gospel is about Jesus at meals. One scholar says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Now, why would Luke structure his gospel this way? Well, meals are the perfect way to get to know somebody, aren't they? I mean, even today, if you want to get to know somebody, you say, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee sometime, you know? Let's grab some lunch together and get to know one another. And Luke knows that, and he structures his gospel so that we get to know Jesus at these meals, you see the chart there in your notes. There's all kinds of breakfasts and lunches and dinners with Jesus all through Luke. In fact, it turns out this is one of the criticisms that Jesus' opponents have against him. He likes to eat too much. He quoted his own critics. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And not only did Jesus spend a lot of his time at meals, he used meals as a metaphor in his teaching a lot. He said things like, I give you a kingdom that you may what? Eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. As another scholar says of Jesus, Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. And that's why I want to do this series. I think at the end of this series, looking at all 10 meals of Jesus in Luke, you're going to feel like you know Jesus a lot better. You're going to feel like you sat down with him at a meal and you gain nourishment for your own souls. So are you ready for this? This is intriguing, isn't it? So let's look at the first meal mentioned in the Gospel of Luke today in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 35. This is the story of Levi's party. And there's three important truths I see about Jesus in this first meal. You can jot these down in your message notes. And the first one is this. Jesus values people that others despise. 
Jesus values people that others despise. And this is important because if you've ever looked down on yourself, maybe you struggle with despising yourself. Or maybe other people have despised you through your life. You're going to gain a lot of just super encouraging news from this. This happens very early in the ministry of Jesus, so he's trying to establish what he's like. And it says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. And this is the same person also called Matthew in the Bible, by the way. Just like today, a lot of people had two names and used both of them. Levi is the same tax collector as Matthew. And he's sitting at his tax booth. Now stop right there for just a second. What I want to do this morning, because this is kind of a familiar story for a lot of us, is I want to kind of kind of blow your mind with some, some, some info about this that's sort of behind the scenes that you may not know. It says tax collector. Now, these days, nobody really likes tax collectors, right? You probably don't exactly feel warm feelings when I say the initials IRS or April 15th, which just happened recently. But there's no comparison with how much tax collectors were absolutely hated in the first century. Why? Well, Rome at this point, ruled Israel, right? So how did they collect tax? Well, instead of having Romans go out and collect tax, they always had, in all their provinces, the locals collect the tax. And the Romans would sell the franchise, sell the ability to collect tax to the highest local bidder. And so whoever won the franchise, they got a right to go around through the countryside and collect tax in that region. And here's the way they made money. They gave to Rome a percentage, kind of a cut of what Rome demanded, but then they could charge over and above that whatever they wanted to as their own private kind of profit. So the tax collectors gave Rome a percentage as Rome's cup, but then added whatever profit margin they wanted, and that meant they got incredible wealth tax collectors could stop anyone at any time for any tax inspection. So you can imagine how much people just loathe this. No search warrant. Just stop right there. Surprise tax inspection. Let me see if you got anything you need to pay tax on. And they could charge tax about just about anything. Taxes collected included poll tax, letter tax, produce tax, market tax, export tax, import tax, land tax, income tax, ground tax. And the ground tax covered anything you grew on your own ground like you had to pay one-tenth of any grain you grew in your own yard. You had to pay one-fifth of any fruit you grew on your own fruit trees. You had to pay one-fifth of any wine you made yourself to the government. And then when you left your house, there was wheel tax, axle tax, road tax, cart tax, border tax, bridge tax, and I could go on and on and on. There was any kind of tax. Basically, if they stopped you on the road with one of those surprise, you know, tax checks, or if they came knocking on the door they could find something to tax. And then when you couldn't pay all these taxes, they became loan sharks. And they charged up to 50% interest or more. And if you didn't pay, they would send their thugs to break your legs or rough you up a little bit. This is true. It was kind of like the tax mafia. So when people looked at tax collectors, they not only saw what we saw, you know, somebody taking our money, they saw somebody who was a crook, an extortionist, a mobster and a traitor, a Roman collaborator. And that meant tax collectors were actually banned from the synagogue, which was the Jewish weekly 
service that they went to for teaching and learning from the Word. It was kind of like our equivalent of our church service. They couldn't go to synagogue. No, you can't go because you are a bad tax collector. Not only that, they were banned from the temple. Consequently, the only people who would hang around with tax collectors were other tax collectors and other people marginalized by religious society like prostitutes. And watch this now. Even within that subculture, there was strata. There was a caste system. Watch this. The first type of tax collector was called a gabbai, G-A-B-B-A-I. And in those days, the gabbai was sort of a general tax collector. They collected the land tax, the income tax, kind of those big-time people who collected the big annual taxes. Zacchaeus is somebody in the Bible who was one of these, and later on in the series, we're going to meet Zacchaeus. But then under the gabbai, there were some small-time tax collectors, and they were called the mokus, and they dealt with all the sort of day-to-day tax collection, duties, import, road tax, poll tax, axle tax, bridge tax, and they were considered the rankest of the tax collectors, and there were two kinds of mokus. There was a great mokus and a little mokus. And you were considered a great mokus if you employed people because that meant you had a franchise, you put your people at the tax collection stations, you didn't do it yourself, but you were a little mokus if you just kind of had to sit at the tax collection station by yourself. You didn't have any staff, it was just you. And maybe this is because you were new to it and couldn't afford staff, but probably this was because you didn't want to pay staff. You were that greedy, you were like, no, I'm just going to work it and I'm going to collect it all myself. And if you were a little mokus, you were the most hated of all the hated people. You were the worst tax collector of all the tax collectors, and Levi was a little mokus. Uh, There were some writings that said the the little mokus were the bottom rung of the social ladder. Uh, some, Some existing Jewish writings at the time say the little mokus were just a shade below prostitutes. Not a shade above, a shade below. And those same writings said repentance for them is impossible. They've gone too far. Forgiveness could never happen for them. They're unforgivable people. So if you want to know how far God goes to rescue people, Jesus, very early in his ministry, goes all the way down to the very, 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 very lowest person. Now, some of you are going, how do you know Levi was a little mokus? doesn't say that here in verse 27 in the text. It does. Did you notice? It says he was sitting at his tax booth. So we know he was a little mokus. And by the way, let me let you picture this. We know just where his tax booth was. The Bible says this happens in a village called Capernaum. Show you a map. This was a border town at the top of the Sea of Galilee. There was a border that ran right through the sea, like the California-Nevada border runs right through Lake Tahoe, very similar to that. And archaeologists have found the Roman mile marker that stood right where the border tax booth would have been on the road, the Via Maris, that ran right through Capernaum, and Levi's booth would have been somewhere right next to this marker. So we actually know pretty much exactly where this story happened. But he was a little mokus, the dregs, the unforgivable, probably the most hated man in Capernaum, but Jesus notices him. Watch this. The word saw, 
means not just to notice, but to gaze intently. And in Luke's writings, both in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, which we're going to study this fall, he uses this word a lot, where Jesus just comes up and he gazes at somebody. Now, this is going to make you uncomfortable in the first place, right? Somebody, anybody comes up to you, they're starting to walk past, and they just go. And they just start gazing at you. But if you're a little mokus, this is really going to make you uncomfortable because most people are, are trying to avoid eye contact with you. Kind of like how when you're in school and you got a tough teacher, you avoid eye contact with the teacher because you don't want them to call on you, right? You don't want to make contact with a little mocus because what's he going to do? Hey, come over here for a spot tax check. So the only people who ever stared down a little mocus were people who were about to just erupt, right? Just go all crazy on him. And he's like, oh, here it comes again. And Jesus stares him down. And of all the things that Jesus could have said, Levi never expected this new rabbi in town to look at him and say, follow me. What? Yeah, you. You know what? You're exactly the kind of person that I'm looking for to be my disciple. I want you. Come on, let's go. What, me? Nobody ever says that kind of thing to me. And it says, Levi got up left everything and followed him. He just goes running after Jesus. Now, you know what I love about this? He doesn't know all the theology about Jesus. He doesn't really even know exactly what Jesus is teaching. But he has that tug, that sense of calling, and he knows he wants to follow. And I have to tell you, sometimes as a pastor, I get a little bit worried in our era that people who are attracted to Jesus go, oh, I can't follow Jesus till I have all my questions answered and all my questions about Jesus, all my questions about God, all my questions about the Trinity, all my questions about predestination, all my questions about heaven and hell, all my questions about inspiration, all my questions about the church and all my questions about the history of the church and all my questions about the church's position on all the currently hot-button issues in politics and then maybe I'll decide to follow him. Matthew, Levi, didn't have any of those answers. All, all you need to really know if you are deciding whether or not to follow Jesus is whether you want to follow Jesus. That's all you really need to know. And then while you're going along the way with Jesus, he's going to teach you and bring you along in all of these other ways. And so Jesus notices people that others just, just ostracizes, but then he goes further. Point two, Jesus befriends people that others ostracize. He befriends him and gets into his inner circle. Check this out. Next verse. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of who? Tax collectors and others were eating with them. Just the other people. I think Levi was like, you have got to meet this guy. And so he invites all his other friends who were a bunch of other tax collectors. You got the Gabaiis and the big mocuses and the little mocuses. And the only other people who would hang out with them were prostitutes. A lot of times in the Bible, you, do you remember that tax collectors and prostitutes were kind of the lowest dregs and they're the people associated with Jesus? It's because they're the only ones that would hang out with one another. They were on the same social acceptability scale, which was like zero. So I want you to picture this. It says it was at his house and it was a large crowd. So even as a little mocus, 
Levi was already very wealthy because this must have been a large place. Now, I really want you to picture this because I really think we just don't, we, we skip right over this. What was this great banquet like? And why would religious people have found this so offensive? Check this out. Look, look at the screen. Daniel Rogoff was the restaurant and wine critic for the Jerusalem Post, which is a daily newspaper in Israel. He's passed away now, just passed away a couple of years ago. But he was also uh, the senior writer for Gourmet and Wine magazine. And as kind of a personal hobby, since he lived in Jerusalem, changed uh, between Jerusalem and New York kind of every year, and he decided, you know what, I want to find out what these banquets were like. They're mentioned a lot in rabbinical literature and in early Christian literature. What, what were these really like? And he found some things that might really surprise you. He said they, because they, there's a lot of descriptions of them uh, around uh, archaeologically, and, and he says they, they resembled Roman banquets more than anything else. In other words, this was not, let's get a nice pizza from Pizza My Heart. This was really elaborate. He says the middle classes and the rich in Judea tried to, tried to mimic the Greeks and the Romans. He says a large banquet in Roman Judea lasted 10 hours or longer. This is, this is bigger than Thanksgiving. He said they started with a first course of hors d'oeuvres of small fowl, and it's not like they each had a little wing. They each had several pigeons and game hens and ducks and so on. And then usually there was some kind of entertainment intermission as you digested that. There were acrobats, there were dancers, there were fire eaters, there were animal trainers. There was a ventriloquist who went around with little Marcy. No, that's not in here. That, but it was like a mini Cirque du Soleil thing. And then that was followed by a second course of soup and appetizers. That was followed by the main course of roast meat and fine wine. Now, stop right there. Here's a kind of graduate level question. What kind of meat do you think they didn't eat at these banquets? This is in Judea. What didn't they eat there? They didn't eat pork. What else didn't they eat because it wasn't kosher? Yeah. Shellfish, somebody said. Wrong. Daniel Rogoff says that's what he expected to find. In fact, there is ample evidence that they lavishly enjoyed non-kosher food. There's uh, lists of the menu of feasts at King Herod's banquets. And he had shellfish, he had shrimp and lobster and pork. How could they have gotten away with that in Roman Judea? Well, as Daniel Rogoff points out, the Pharisees wouldn't go to these banquets. And so everybody else is like, who's going to criticize us? The Pharisees aren't here. We can have whatever we want. Isn't that fascinating? So that's probably the kind of stuff that they're having here. And what did they eat all this with? This might surprise you. When we were in the Israel Museum about a year and a half ago or so, when was that? about two years ago, something like that. But they had a special room that was a display of first century uh, Judean eating implements, because we think of them just eating with their hands and so on. They, they used silverware. They used glasses. In the early first century in Judea, that was the first era of mass-produced glassware. And so in other words, they eat with stuff that looks a lot like stuff that you might have in a nice silver setting in your own house. Uh, one of the things they said at the museum that has surprised archaeologists was even in the, the middle-class homes, not homes of great means, they might not have had any other luxury, but they had a set of silver for entertaining people because that was considered the way that it was proper to serve meals. So this is the guy. These are very fancy banquets. This isn't 
crazy medieval, you know, King Henry VIII stuff. This is very sophisticated stuff, except for the fact that they did love to throw their leftovers on the floor. Here's a painting of a great banquet from this exact era. The guests reclining on couches, bones thrown everywhere. Some of you have teenagers at home. This is my home every Friday night. Um, now, again, what are they talking about? What, what, would, what would anybody talk about at, at a banquet for 10 hours? Eventually, what you're getting to is, how's business, right? How's business, Fred? And remember, who are these people? Other tax collectors with their staffs, you know, the hitmen, the enforcers, the prostitutes. How's business? Well, I had to beat up Frank today. Yeah, I've had problems with Frank, too. Hey, I've got some new ideas for being a loan shark. It's called a credit card. I think it might catch on, you know? Jesus passed the pigeon. This is what's happening. And obviously, Jesus didn't approve of everything that's going on, but he loves these people. And what's he doing? What's Jesus doing there? Here's something I didn't know before this last week when I read Daniel Rogov's work. A large banquet was traditionally divided into two parts. The first was the dinner, which I just described to you. But part two was what they called the symposium. And this was when an entertaining guest lecturer would come in after people had eaten all that food, and he'd give kind of a TED Talk, kind of a little brief entertaining lecture that was meant to stimulate the mind as well as stimulate the, the, the senses. And, and I'm thinking this is what Christ was doing at these places. And these symposium speakers had to be great because eyelids were heavy. And to hold the attention of this crowd, right? You had to learn how to speak well. You had to be punchy and sharp and brief and colorful. And that's how Jesus spoke. And I think that's one of the reasons that they love to have him at these dinners. So this is an amazing party. And then the fun police show up. And as usual, it's religious people. Next verse. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, why are you engaging in this crazy, non-kosher, extravagant, expensive banquet? You ever wonder, what, what is their problem? Why do the Pharisees drop in on everybody's good time and tell them to stop it? right? What, what do they care what somebody else is doing with their money and with their time and in their house? Well, in a word, here is why the Pharisees were so worried. They were concerned about contamination. And this is actually the root of all man-made religion, isn't it? You got to stay away from being contaminated by other people in other castes or, or who have other sins than yours. What they were worried about was getting sin germs from other people. And if you have ever worried about getting actual germs from anybody, then you can relate to the Pharisees. And I just read this this week. Do you know what the most germy surface in your house is? Anybody shout it out. What do you think it is? The, no, the sinks? No. What else? The toilet, somebody said? No. What else? Dishes? No. Stop talking. You don't know. You're all wrong. Um, by a wide margin, the germiest place in your house is your kitchen towels. Your kitchen towels. 
This is so gross. 89% of kitchen towels they tested in a recent study contained coliform bacteria, which is the really, really bad stuff. Now, you know, some of you right now cannot stop being grossed out thinking about your kitchen towels right now. You want to go home and change them right now. In fact, that's what Scott just did. He just left and changed his kitchen towels because he knew what I was going to talk about. Well, if you feel like that, that is what the Pharisees felt when they saw Jesus with those tax collectors and sinners. They were like, oh, that's just icky, right? Because that's contagious to the rest of this. What do you ta- why, why does it matter to them what somebody else does? This is huge. The Pharisees taught the Messiah will come to Israel when the whole nation has cleaned itself up. God won't send the Messiah till we're all clean, till he sees all of Israel holy, doing right, as defined by the law, including kosher law. And that meant if you weren't keeping kosher, then you were not just, you know, a bummer to yourself. You were a bummer to the whole nation. You were ruining things for everybody because the Messiah will only come where we're all cleaned up. And that's why they went around correcting people. They thought that we're only doing you a favor, man, because the Messiah's not going to come till everybody's obedient. And this is why it's such a disconnect for them when Jesus shows up, says he's the Messiah, and what does he do? He plunges right into the pool of unclean people. <laughs> They're like, well, uh, that's not what the Messiah does. That's the opposite of what the Messiah does, they thought. In fact, earlier in this same chapter, a leper comes up to Jesus. Now, lepers, people with leprosy, were considered very unclean, not allowed to even go into town, let alone the temple. And this leper throws himself at Jesus' feet and says, if you are willing, make me clean. He gets it. Jesus doesn't even have to touch him. Jesus just has to be willing, and he'd be clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And that's all he had to do. But then he does something he doesn't have to do. It says he reaches out and he touches him, touches the leper. Why? He's making a point to all the people who were standing around looking at him, (gasps) touching somebody who's literally unclean. And it's a point he's continuing to make here at Levi's party. And it's this. All throughout history, when the diseased come into contact with the clean, what transfers, the cleanness or the disease? the disease. You don't catch health from somebody. You catch a cold, right? But Jesus is saying, my healthiness is so robust that it's actually more contagious than the disease. Jesus is health. Jesus is wholeness. Jesus is holiness itself. With Jesus, infection works in reverse all the way down to our inner character. And that's a dynamic completely opposite of religion. As Tim Keller says, religion creates a fragile holiness, right? What, what the Pharisees thought, God's not going to come and help us until we get our act cleaned up. That's exactly the way people in America think. God's not going to help me. I've got to get my act cleaned up first. That's a fragile holiness. Because then if, if you are holy, if you are clean, it's like, oh, I might lose my cleanness and I better not have anything to do with the bad people because they'll defile me. But in Jesus, there's a robust holiness because it originates in God and not in you because it's by grace and not by works. Next verse, Jesus answered them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. There's a great church I know that has this slogan, everyone is welcome, nobody is perfect, anything is possible. Don't you love that? And that's the sign Jesus is putting up. Everyone's welcome because nobody's perfect and anything's possible. Does that mean Jesus approved of everything going on at that party? Of course not. But he's more interested in helping these people than he is in judging them. And that has to start with a relationship. And that's point three. Jesus empowers people others judge. The Pharisees just go go around judging these people. They feel like that's their role, to be the moral police. But Jesus empowers them. Watch this. Jesus had just said, you know, I'm doing this to reach these people. But the Pharisees keep complaining. Next, they say, they just don't like the fact that they're having fun. They go, John's disciples often fast and pray. John's disciples aren't having fun like your disciples. And the Pharisees' disciples, the same thing. But yours go on eating and drinking. Basically, how come you're having fun? Because we're sure not. And Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now stop right there and circle friends of the bridegroom. Friends. It's so much more empowering to know Jesus is your friend. He's your friend than to think he's like the super Pharisee or to think he's, he won't come until I clean up my act. No, he comes right down to the lowest level and he befriends me and that empowers me. The joy, the confidence from having him as my, as my, my friend. And then he goes on to say, they'll mourn soon enough. And he's talking about the night he was crucified. Already at this point, early in his ministry, Jesus knows the ultimate way he is going to transfer health to our disease is by dying for us on the cross. So let's just wrap up with this. If I'm a follower of Jesus, number one, I'm going to know he treats me like this. Do you know he treats sinners, including you, like he treats these people in this story. Do you know for sure he is not here at church waiting for you to show up and be good, or at least better than you were last week? He's at your house, with you, wherever you're at, empowering you to change as your friend. And and he notices you, even though other people may have rejected you or made fun of you. He loves you. Do you know that he treats you like this? Because if you do, then number two, you're going to treat others the same way. I'm going to treat others the same way. And don't put away your notes because just for a couple of minutes, I want to camp out on this point. And when you're done writing that point, look up here for just a minute because I'll show you something interesting. When Matthew writes his version of this story, when he describes what happened at his house, he includes a couple of details that Luke doesn't include. I mean, he was there. And one of them is this, uh, an extra phrase from Jesus. Jesus says to these Pharisees, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea, and this is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing if you get what this means. He's saying the mark, Jesus is saying the mark that you've been in contact with me is not scrupulous religiosity. It's what? Mercy. Mercy. 
kindness, compassion toward people who are not religious, not like you, not good. He says to the Pharisees, go and learn this. And my question is, have you learned this? Have I learned this? Let me tell you, here's why this is so hard. Nobody wants to say they're a Pharisee. But would you at least agree with this statement? Church activity can create a kind of ivory tower keeping you out of contact with the unchurched people. Would you agree with that? It's obvious. Churches, especially churches like ours, can get so big and so busy that we're always at church with the church people. What about being at the parties with the party people? Are you ever in proximity to them? If you really want to be like Jesus, you are going to have meals with some people that religious folks might feel very uncomfortable with because that's what Jesus did. In fact, probably, like Jesus, you're going to be invited to things and you'll feel like, well, my religious friends judge me for going to this. It might raise some eyebrows. Maybe if you went to this thing, people might think you approve of something, some political view or something that you don't approve of or you don't hold or you have some opinion that you don't have. But will you go because you've been invited and Jesus would go? Now, obviously, be wise. I'm not saying if you're in recovery, go to a bar if that's a difficulty for you or, or whatever. You've got to think about this. But can I, can you climb out of our ivory tower? One of the most profound examples of this I know of happened in Hawaii. You might know the story. Anyone on the islands with leprosy in the 1800s was banished to Molokai, where they grew hopeless According to an account written in 1868, quote, drunken and lewd conduct prevails here. One resident said, there's no law here, only chaos and despair. It was literally a place of leprosy and prostitution and lawlessness. Nobody wanted to help. And then came Father Damien, a Belgian priest who was serving at a church on Oahu, comfortable church, when stories of Jesus going to the lepers struck him, and he literally went to live with the lepers. Orphanages were built, shacks replaced with houses, farms were organized, schools established, churches built, but he still didn't really see a lot of people come to Christ until after 16 years of caring for the lepers, Father Damien himself contracted leprosy. And his faith became contagious. It was then that suddenly he saw waves of people coming to Christ because they knew he was with them. And he became so beloved on the islands, he was even knighted by the Hawaiian royal family. But I was researching him uh, this week, and, you know, he did get criticism. Guess from where? The religious leaders. Some things never change. I found a, a, a letter to the editor that a leader of the church in San Francisco wrote calling him, quote, a coarse, dirty man who contracted leprosy due to his carelessness going and ministering to people in Molokai. Doesn't that sound like what the Pharisees said about Jesus? So my question is this. You might say, well, that's an extreme example. Well, what about the people here in Santa Cruz? What about your own neighbors on your own street? Do you even know who they are? 
Do you hang out with them? Jesus, in this first meal, is saying, I call you to have an open table. He extends grace to everyone, and he calls on you and me to do the same. Let me just get very personal here. We are at a church that is over 125 years old, and that is awesome. We just built a beautiful new building, and that's phenomenal. But do you know what the typical problem of churches like us is? We stay inside our beautiful building, and we get insulated, and we get to the point where we only know other people who are just like us right here at TLC. And that is a way for a church to die. We've got a great building, but not, let's, let's not stay inside that building. Jesus would say, keep going, keep extending your circle to people outside the circle, people on your streets, people in your town. And when you see that mindset happening, then real Jesus-level growth can happen again right here. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I thank you so much for offering us mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Not for the people who think they're perfect already, but for the sinners. So the church isn't made up of people who think they're good. It's made up of us who know that we're not good. And so, Father, I pray, well, I know that you are saying to some hearts right now, follow me. And my prayer is that some people here right now would go, okay. I don't understand it, but neither did Levi in this story today. And I want to leave the sin in my life, and I want to follow you, Jesus, and teach me along the way what that means, that we're not the righteous, we're the sinners, but you have mercy on us, so much so that you paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And help us to mix it up more with the people in our community. Help us to be like Jesus and to be with people, confident that the Christ in us is more contagious than the sin in them. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.